Good morning. You're here. I wasn't sure anyone would be here this morning. Quite frankly, I wasn't sure if I was going to be here this morning because my alarm didn't go off. But here we all are. Thank you for coming. If I haven't met some of you yet, my name is Sarah, and I get to serve here as the Associate Community Pastor at Vista. And it is just really exciting to bring the Word of God to you this morning. We are in the a little bit past the middle point of our gospel in Luke. Uh, we're studying the story of Jesus. And for me, it has just been an incredible blessing to take some time to immerse ourselves in the life of Christ. Anybody else feel that? Anyone else enjoy this road trip that we've been on with Jesus? Some of you have. A little bit more of you have. Well, I do know there's also probably a few of you in here who, have, who are kind of thinking this is maybe the longest road trip you've ever been on. My mic's getting a little fuzzy. Sorry, y'all. Um, and you wouldn't be wrong. Also, maybe, therefore, the longest sermon series you've ever had to sit and listen to. Now, I know that that's the truth because we all know that there are two types of people on a road trip, right? Two types of people on a road trip. One of those people loves the journey. Like, they want to stop everywhere. They want to take all the pictures, listen to all the songs, play the sign games. Is that anybody in here? Yeah, a couple of us. All right. And then there's the others, right, who... Their sole reason for existing is the destination, right? You know who you are. You're, some of your spouses are nudging you. Got two of them down front. Right, two types of people on a road trip. Those who are along for the journey and those whose sole reason for existing is the destination. Now, growing up, I went on quite a few road trips with my family. Um, my dad usually drove. My mom usually operated the switch, you know, back here when the kids were fighting. Um, and so, you know, I always thought my dad was like a human map. He never, I never saw him reading a map. This was, you know, well before phones with uh, maps on them. We didn't even have, remember the garments that suction to your, uh, your uh, car dash? Remember those? How about MapQuest? My dad never printed MapQuest directions. And so in my mind, my dad was like a human map. We would get in the car and just drive, and he would make his best calculations. Eventually, we would get there, and y'all, we had fun. I mean, we would stop for gas and get out of the car. Yeah, we would go in, but my parents would say, hit that candy aisle. It, you know, a kid in a candy aisle is like me at a clearance aisle at Target. Like, you never know what you're going to find, and it's so thrilling to go in for the hunt. And so my parents would say, go pick out some candy. We would go, we would go get back in the car, hit the road. Uh, we took our time at meals. You know, I feel like we had this bingo game where we would try to hit every single Cracker Barrel between home and wherever we were going. And so we took our time at these places. We would talk to people. And my dad, he always carried tracks with him. Um, we're, you know, this little tangible thing to share the gospel. And everywhere we stopped, he would take the time to share the gospel with our waitress or waiter or that innocent bystander sitting at the Cracker Barrel, you know, checkers table. Whatever it was, we took our time. We had fun. And I realized as an adult that our trip probably took a lot longer than it actually had to. I'm sure we could have made it there faster, but that wasn't the point for my dad. We enjoyed it. We had fun as a family. We made memories. This was Jesus, and that's what we've been seeing these last couple weeks on Jesus' road trip. The journey mattered to Jesus. He no doubt had a destination. We all know this. Jesus' destination was the most important destination in the history of destinations, right? Jesus is going to save the world, but the journey mattered to him. Jesus' journey to the cross was not one of pious isolation and a tight schedule, right? 
his journey to the cross was a path through the world, intentionally interacting with other people. That's what we've been seeing. I love it. And he, a, lot of them, a lot of times what he was doing on his journey was stopping to tell stories, right? We've seen so many parables throughout the gospel, all the gospels, but we've hit several of them in the gospel of Luke. And so we're going to jump in this morning in Luke 16. We're going to start with one of, those par- one of the parables that Jesus tells. It's helpful when you're reading a parable to know who the parable is written to. And so here in 16, we're starting verse 19. Um, Jesus, we're finding him in a crowd of people. And so we know that because in the beginning of chapter 16, he has been talking with the disciples. He's told them a parable. And then midway through chapter 16, we see that the Pharisees clearly were eavesdropping. And they do not like what Jesus has to say to the disciples. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, he's got a story for the Pharisees. And that's what we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. Y'all read along. To the Pharisees. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. And besides all of this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus hooks the Pharisees with two relatable characters to start off his story. The rich man who they no doubt connect himself with. Yeah, nice clothes, good food, great house, check, check, check. Everything's going good. The Pharisees like this man. They approve. They're they're bought in. And then he gives them the other character, this poor man, Lazarus. And of course, they they don't approve of Lazarus, but they like this character. Why? Because Lazarus makes them feel better about themselves, right? And so they're listening to uh, Lazarus' description. Jesus is talking about Lazarus. And it almost feels like Jesus goes overboard. Like, it's helpful to know that he's poor, right? We get it. Some context there. But do we really need to know that he's covered in swords and moreover, that his swords are being licked by the dogs? That almost feels like overkill, Jesus. But what he's doing here is drawing a very clear line in the sand, that these men could not be more different. They could not be. And the Pharisees hear this, and it's likely that they assume Lazarus has very clearly upset God. He has somehow done something to deserve the life that he's living. Otherwise, this poor guy just wouldn't have to go through all this. Very clearly, he's upset God. Very clearly, Lazarus will have no place in heaven, but this rich man, 
you know, he's, he's storing up those treasures in heaven, right? Well, Jesus is going to have a little twist in the story. What happens? Both men die. Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man. We find him in torment, okay? And towards the end of the story, what does the rich man end up doing? He's please, he says, please send Lazarus to warn my family so that they don't come here. He's like, I don't know how I ended up here. I did everything right. I had all the riches. My life looked good. I thought we were on the right page, and now I'm in torment. I don't know what happened. Go warn my family so that they don't end up here too. And what does Abraham says? Listen, they've been warned. They've been warned. How? They had Moses and the prophets, which, by the way, would have been the Pharisees' favorite source of authority. So they knew very well about this place of torment. And Abraham says, listen, you've been warned. And the rich man's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know we know all this. But listen, if you do something awesome, if you prove yourself, then they will believe everything that this says. Then they'll believe. And Abraham's like, no, they won't believe. Here's how I know they won't believe. Because a, rich, or a dead man coming to life, what do you think this story is? What do you think it is? That's exactly what this story is. It's a man coming to life and saving you. And you want Lazarus to come back from the dead. Who's Lazarus? He's not going to do a thing for you. But Jesus will. The very man who's telling them this story. If you flip over in John chapter 5, verse 39, it says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Over in verse 46, it says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. That's what Jesus said. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's the bottom line, what Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees in this parable. Unbelief at heart is a moral problem, not a spiritual problem. Unbelief is a moral problem, not a spiritual problem. Why? Because God has given us everything, everything that we need to know him and follow him, y'all, and is right here. Some of you are holding it in your very hand, the word of God. It is, it is alive and it is active. It discerns our thoughts and our intentions. It reveals truth and lies deep within us, the word of God. This is how we know who he is. This past weekend, um, we hosted a women's conference here. If gathering, we did a simulcast, and during the conference, they interviewed a pastor of an underground church in an undisclosed Islamic country. And this pastor, he's sitting there, you know, his, uh, his face is blurred out and his voice is altered, so we uh, don't know his identity. And he begins to share about a village that he and his team visited in some, in some remote village, and these people, uh, they had never heard the name of Jesus. Like, when they asked them, do you know who Jesus is? They're like, what's his last name? Like had never, no concept of who Jesus is. And this pastor shares that he went to one particular tent. And um, when, he, when he got there, the man who lived in this tent, he, he came up to the pastor and he said, hey, every night a man visits my tent wearing all white, every night. And we sit and we talk and he tells me things to write down. And the pastor asked through the translator, do you mind if I see your notebook and what you've written? So he hands in the notebook, and he's, he's reading through it with the help of the translator. And he reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This man, y'all, who had never heard the name of Jesus, 
had written the entire book of John. God has always, and he will always continue to reveal himself and his word right here. And so Jesus tells this story to the Pharisees, and then then he's going to turn his attention to who? The disciples. Chapter 17. He drops this truth bomb on the Pharisees. Listen, you've gotten it all wrong. You are full of unbelief, and your unbelief has led you to spiritual blindness. So you're not able to see the truth about God, who he is or what he's doing. That's what unbelief does. He's going to turn to the disciples, and he's got a word for them. Chapter 17, verse 1. He said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Here's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. See these Pharisees over here? Listen, life's going to be hard, okay? And no one's going to be perfect. But whatever you do, don't be like these guys. Don't be like these guys. They've spent their entire lives tempting people away from the sin, away from the truth. Sorry, not sin. Tempting people away from the truth of who God is, right? They're shouting religion and even scripture, but they refuse to live it out for themselves, They've been an obstacle to these little ones, as Luke calls them here. Elsewhere, you know these little ones as the lost sheep or the lost coin that Austin talked about last week, or the prodigal son, the least of these, all of whom Jesus has said, come unto me. And these Pharisees have been an obstacle to all of these coming to the truth. And Jesus says, listen, it would be better for you to drown than to have the chance to keep someone to be an obstacle to them knowing the truth. Don't be like these guys, right? Don't do it. They had the truth, and they chose not to believe it. They chose not to. So don't be like them. How should we be then? So Jesus is going to give the disciples a little pep talk. In the next couple of passages, we're going to see Jesus list three characteristics of a believing person. A believing person being someone who believes God and takes him at his word, okay? Believes God and takes him at his word. Let's see what he has to say. Luke 17, verse three. Pay attention to yourselves. Now, when Jesus says pay attention, you better know that whatever he has to say, he's very serious about it and he doesn't want you to miss it, okay? Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. Now, why does Jesus feel so strongly about forgiveness that he would say, pay attention? Why specifically pay attention to forgiveness in your life? Well, forgiveness is the very thing that heals that great chasm between us and God. Christ's forgiveness for us offered on the cross. Forgiveness is a serious thing to God, a serious thing. And he's not saying, listen, seven times in your marriage and you're good. Seven times in the year and you'll be good. Seven times in a day, you guys, seven times in a day. And that can feel excessive, but what is he actually saying here? He's saying every single time, every single time, forgive He's saying unlimited forgiveness, unlimited forgiveness. There are no options around it. As a believer, we forgive. 
How easy is that? It's not. And listen, I know that there are layers of complexities wrapped up in forgiveness. Like, like we could talk for days about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not, about boundaries and about healing. There's a lot of conversation in forgiveness, and some of you will need very real help to get to this point. But we cannot overlook here that this is not a suggestion. Jesus says, you must forgive. You must forgive. Now, that's a hard truth. And the disciples hear this hard truth, and they have some concerns about it, right? Let's keep reading. 17, verse 5, the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. So Jesus says, you need, to un- you need to forgive every time. Unlimited forgiveness, right? And the disciples are like, whoa, Jesus. I don't know if I can do that. Increase my faith. Give me more faith. And some of you, y'all, we can't fault the disciples here. Because when someone starts talking about forgiveness, what happens out there to each of us? That person's face pops into our mind, right? For some of you, it's a Rolodex of faces, Rolodex of people who have hurt you through your life. And like I said, layers of complexities. But the disciples are feeling that right now. No doubt these people, their faces popped into their minds and they're going, God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can forgive this person. Increase our faith. Give us more faith. And what is Jesus' response to them going to be? Verse 6, the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. A lot of times we use this verse and we think Jesus is saying, you just need to have a little faith, just a little faith and miracles will happen, right? But then we find ourselves confused and disappointed when that proverbial mulberry tree in our life doesn't move a single inch, right? So what is Jesus actually saying here? If you had, if you had the smallest amount of faith, miracles, unimaginable things would happen in your life. If you had it, unimaginable things like, I don't know, forgiving someone who has hurt you so deeply, it's a miracle. And if you had the smallest amount of faith, that would happen in your life. So if the smallest amount of faith will produce miracles in our lives, then more faith just can't be the answer. More faith can't be the answer. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? In fact, y'all, faith isn't something that we can even measure as if to see who is the greater Christian, who has the bigger faith. Faith isn't something we can even measure. I love this quote, N.T. Wright. This is how he defines faith. Faith is like a window through which you can see something. What matters is not whether the window is six inches or six feet high. What matters is the God that your faith is looking out on. Jesus is telling the disciples, listen, you don't need more faith. You need true faith, and so do we. So often we look through that tiny window and all we see is that really difficult situation we're going through. Or all we see is that person that has hurt us so deeply time and time again. Or we see our, our failures or inabilities. Or maybe we see our abilities, which we've relied on so heavily. True faith is looking past all of that and choosing to believe God and take him at his word. He tells them they need to have true faith. Let's look at our last characteristic this morning, Luke 17, verse 7. 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Is that hard for anyone else to hear? You're just doing what your duty is, right? Just an unworthy servant. Now, here's the tricky thing about obedience, right? This last characteristic that Jesus says will uh, be aligned with a believer's life. The tricky thing about obedience, it's so easy for us to become entitled, right? Do you remember what Austin said last week about entitlement? Entitlement is the mark of a grumbler. Some of y'all were here. Entitlement is the mark of a grumbler. God, I've done all of these things for you, right? I've served you. I come to church. I'm a good person. I tithe. I've checked all of these boxes. And while I would never say out loud, I do expect my life to look a certain way. I do expect you, God, to do a certain thing for me. I do expect you, God, to play the cards in my favor because it's it's the right thing, God. I've done all of this for you. Surely you will play the cards in my favor. Surely you will. Now, this may be a shock for some of you this morning, but no matter what we do, even after a lifetime of serving God, he will never be in our favor. I'm sorry, in our debt. God is for us, but he will never be in our debt. And here's why. God cannot be in our debt because God is the guarantor of our debt. Y'all, we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And like the good father that he is, he took responsibility for it. He died in our place and he rose from the dead, just like all of scripture. Yes, even Moses and the prophets said that he would. He died for us. The man has saved our lives. How can he possibly owe us anything? When I believe this truth, I can step back and say, I am an unworthy servant. I'm just doing what you've asked me to do. So to be clear, a believer, someone who believes God and takes him at his word, they're going to live a life like this, right? Unlimited unforgiveness. They're going to have true faith, and they're going to obey God as an unworthy servant. We good? Check. Everyone got that? Guys, how hard does this feel? Very hard. I step back and I go, God, like, how do I even begin this? One thing ties these together and makes them possible in our life. Y'all want to know what it is? Humility. God, how can I possibly forgive this person again? Like, I don't have it in me, God. By remembering my own sin condition and that it is Christ's forgiveness that has healed that in me. God, how can I truly have faith in you? I can't see you. I can't hear you. There's no evidence of you in my life. I don't know where you are. Truth faith looks through that tiny window and says, no matter what my life or my feelings say, you are God and I am not. I can't make you perform. I can't make you do what I want. But I choose to believe that what your word says about you is true. 
Humility allows us to remember our place in this story, that God loved us so much that he died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to die. And remembering that allows me to step back and say, God, I am just an unworthy servant. I'm doing what my duty is. I'm doing what I should do, what I want to do to please you and honor you because you have given your very life for me. Humility makes these things possible in our life. Not easy, but possible. And conversely, unbelief is the thief that will come and steal them. Unbelief quietly sneaks into our lives. It whispers in our ears and it says, don't forgive that person. They don't deserve it. They're just going to hurt you again. Unbelief pulls on our faith and it says, God isn't real. And if he is real, he sure doesn't care about you and he sure isn't good. Unbelief. Unbelief convinces us that we've done enough for God. It's his turn to do something for me. Unbelief at heart is a moral problem, not an intellectual one, because he's given us everything that we need. Unbelief gives birth to pride, and then it blinds us from seeing all that God has done and is doing in us and around us. But humility, humility leads us towards unlimited forgiveness, true faith, and obedience. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life, just like Lazarus received. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that you have given us your word. Because God, in here we know you and we experience you, God. You use your word to speak truth into us and over us, God. God, you've provided us everything that we need. And so often we just find ourselves struggling and looking for you and we look for you in ways that we understand and ways relate to, God, but You are so much different than us. Thankfully, you are bigger than us, God. You speak a language we don't speak. But God, you've reached down and you've said, I love you and I can fix all of this and I invite you into this with me. God, lead us to forgiveness. God, that word almost feels painful to hear sometimes. God, but I know that forgiveness is just the doorway into freedom for so many here this morning. Show us how to forgive, how to love as you have forgiven and loved. 